it's history's greatest story, a sprawling epic of an enslaved people condemned to cruel decrees, a baby born into slavery but raised in the king's palace who grows up to be his people's savior, a heavenly revelation in the heart of the desert, ten supernatural plagues from heaven, and finally a cinematic climax in the form of a sea split in two. The story reaches its peak as the people who flew from their enslavers arrive at the foot of Mount Sinai, where they ready themselves for the revelation of their Redeemer, the Creator of the world. Amidst thunder, lightning, and horn blasts, the revelation emanates from the fog surrounding the mountain in the form of ten heavenly statements, known throughout the world as the Ten Commandments, in Hebrew, Aseret Hadibrot. Considered one of the most foundational texts ever written, not only for Jews, but for all of mankind, the Ten Commandments encapsulate the essence of monotheistic morality. Let us take a look at the first of the Ten Commandments. It differs from the others in that it does not contain an explicit command. All it says is, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. In Hebrew, Anochi Hashem Elokecha, Asher Me'eretz Mitzrayim Mi'bet Avadim. There is neither an instruction here, nor a prohibition. It's just a statement. The Creator introduces Himself to His people, as it were, in the context of the redemption that has led to His revelation. Jews are so accustomed to thinking of this verse as the first of the Ten Commandments that they are often shocked to learn that in Christianity, a religion followed by billions of people around the world, this verse is not considered one of the Ten Commandments. According to the Christian interpretation, the first commandment is, You shall have no other gods before me, which according to Judaism is the second commandment. How do they preserve the number ten? Well, the Catholics do it, that's the main denomination. They do it by splitting up the final commandment, You shall not covet, into two. The prohibition against coveting your neighbor's wife, and the prohibition against coveting your neighbor's property. Just to be clear, this interpretation is not unfounded. It's based on the way the paragraphs are divided in the Hebrew text in the book Deuteronomy, where the Ten Commandments appear for the second time. There you can see, if you open a Torah scroll, you can see very clearly that the first and second commandments take up one paragraph, so that they can be seen as one commandment, and the final commandment, Lotachmod, the Thou shalt not covet, uh, is divided into two paragraphs, despite being one verse. So, that's the foundation. Still, it's not the way Jews have always interpreted this. There are also two other methods of dividing, splitting up the commandments that are practiced by uh, Protestants, and they have a different solution for how to arrive at finally ten. But all of these systems don't regard the first verse as part of the Ten Commandments. At most, it's seen as a kind of uh, introduction to the Ten Commandments, or as part of the First Commandment, which is, you shall have no gods other than me. This system is still propagated today. For example, in the 1980s, the Polish film director, Krzysztof Kishlowski, directed a series of ten films called Decalogue. Decalogue is Greek for the Ten Commandments, or in the original Hebrew, the Ten Sayings. It comes from the uh, Septuagint, which is the ancient Greek translation of the Torah. 
The ten movies were based on the Ten Commandments, with each one depicting a contemporary drama which somehow tackles one of the commandments or the moral dilemmas that come out of these commandments. Anyone who is familiar with the Hebrew um, the counting of the Ten Commandments was surprised to see that the first movie dealt with idolatry. And the last two movies both dealt with not coveting. The ninth movie was about not coveting someone's wife, and the tenth movie was about not coveting someone's property. This is exactly how the Catholics uh, divide and see the Ten Commandments. But it's not how Jews see it. So these series of movies is an example of a modern piece of art that reinforces the influence of the Christian reading of the Ten Commandments in the consciousness of moviegoers worldwide. However, the people who received the Ten Commandments and were entrusted with the task of interpreting them heard and understood otherwise. It was clear to them that the statement, I am the Lord your God, is the first of the commandments, and in many ways the most important of them, the one from which all others derive. And although it contains no explicit imperative, the Jewish sages recognized it does contain an implicit one. It's the commandment of faith. The Torah never says outright, you must believe in God, but the commandment to believe in God is understood to be implicit within the first commandment, I am the Lord your God. Maimonides wrote this in the seminal halachic treatise, the Mishneh Torah. He said the following, Knowing this, i.e. that there is a creator, is a commandment, a positive commandment, a commandment you must do, mitzvat ase, as it says, I am the Lord your God, here in Exodus. Now, there are many different reasons why knowing this, the disparity between the Jewish and the Christian interpretation of the commandments, of the Ten Commandments, is important. There are several reasons. To begin with, we live in a global age, where many Jews and non-Jews interact daily, both face-to-face and online. In such an age, facts of this sort should be deemed as basic common knowledge. Secondly, in recent years, more and more leading rabbis, including my own Rabbi Yitzchak Ginsburg, have begun to speak about the importance of teaching Torah to all the peoples of the world. The Torah should really be a light unto the nations, all nations. In this context, the prior concepts that many, many non-Jews have of the Torah, especially of something as fundamental as the Ten Commandments, is crucial. And there's another even deeper reason. The fact that Christianity failed to recognize the first commandment as one of the ten, which, as we said, is something you can actually arrive at based on the division of the paragraphs in the Torah scroll itself, all this highlights the ambiguity and wonder of this first commandment. The commandment of faith that is embodied in the first commandment, in the first verse of the Ten Commandments, is fundamentally different from all other commandments and prohibitions. It does not confront us directly in the form of a demand, but rather it positions itself tentatively before us in the form of a statement. It's really an invitation, a summons to embark on a journey to to encounter the unknown. The mystery surrounding the first commandment pertains especially to the first word of the first commandment, Anochi, which means I am. 
This is a seemingly innocent word, which appears hundreds of times in the Bible, and which we've already encountered many times prior to the story of the giving of the Torah. And yet it takes on new validity, interest, and meaning by virtue of opening the Ten Commandments, which is really opening the entirety of God's oral revelation through the Torah to His people. Now, the first thing this word gives us is, of course, the emphasis on God as someone as opposed to something. Someone who speaks to us personally, using the first person singular, anuchi, ani, I am. This, like I said, is opposed to the perception of God as something, an abstract entity which lacks any character. This emphasis is stressed in the following words, your God, Elokecha, which employ in Hebrew the second person singular. So there's Anuchi, first person singular, and then there's Elokecha, second person singular. Now this, of course, echoes a fundamental tenet of monotheism, that the Creator is not only some kind of omnipotent consciousness, intellect, or creative force, something abstract, as many mystical and philosophical traditions perceive God. Rather, it possesses a personality of sorts. We are free, we are invited to think of God as a father, as a king, or even as a loving partner, and establish a personal rapport, personal connection with Him. The next commandment, the prohibition against idolatry, serves as a deterrent against anthropomorphizing this figure into a statue, an image, something idolatrous. But the prohibition, this prohibition, is still second, meaning it's a kind of tool or it's a completion, it's an addition to the first commandment, which is the fundamental belief in a personal God. Now, the second question that arises regarding the word Anuchi is why God chooses this particular word in this passage and not the shorter and more common Hebrew word for I, which is Ani. The Bible employs both the word Anochi and the word Ani. Ani is a simpler word and it appears more times. Of the two, why in the Ten Commandments did God choose the word Anochi? So I'll share three fascinating interpretations for this choice, which together paint a very rich picture of the essence of the word Anochi in this context. One interpretation, perhaps the most surprising one, is the suggestion by the Jewish sages that the word Anochi is actually not in Hebrew. It is an Egyptian word. Why on earth would God open Judaism's most fundamental revelation in the Egyptian language? The sages tell a story to pass this idea across. They say that they... The sages tell a story in order to get the idea across. They describe a king whose son was captured by an enemy nation and was taken captive and remained in captivity for a long, long time until he forgot his mother tongue. When father and son are finally reunited, the father, in his sensitivity, opens the conversation with his long-lost son in the language of his captors before moving on to speak in their common tongue. So this is exactly what, is, what has happened here. The Jewish people are the, the captive son, they were uh, being held by the Egyptians, God is their father, and when he reunites with them in the desert, in the, in the Revelation in Mount Sinai, 
he opens by using an Egyptian word so that it would be more familiar to them. They would feel more at home because Egypt was their home for a long, long time. So that was the first interpretation. Second interpretation, also provided by the sages, is that the word Anuchi is really an acronym. It is an acronym of an Aramaic phrase made up of four words. In Hebrew, Anuchi is made up of four Hebrew letters. So the Aramaic phrase is Ana Nafshi Ketavit Yahavit. What does that mean? It literally means, I myself wrote these words and gave these words to you. However, it can also be read as saying, I wrote myself into these words and I gave them to you. The idea is that God placed his own essence and soul, so to speak, within the words of the Torah, his selfhood, his essence is in the words of the Torah. And the idea is that whenever we learn Torah, anything that we learn, it's not just a story or a teaching or an idea. It's a personal appeal from God to us. God is addressing us. God is, God is talking to us. He's, he's holding it, a heart-to-heart conversation with us that we are uh, invited to sort of listen in and join this conversation. So that's the second interpretation. third interpretation is that the word Anuchi is related to another Hebrew word which is written exactly the same, but it, the, it uses different vowels. The vowels in Hebrew aren't letters. They're little dots that you add to the letters. So one word can be read in many, many different ways. So the word Anuchi, the same four letters, can also be read as another Hebrew word which is Anachi. What does Anachi mean? It means vertical or perpendicular, a vertical line. This word appears in the Bible, the root of it, Anach. You can look up Amos 7.7, you can see the word there, Anach. And according to interpreters, but according to interpreters, it is not a Hebrew word. It is derived from Arabic. What does it mean? It refers to a plumb line. What is a plumb line? It's a weight tied to a string such as is used by builders as a sort of vertical reference line when they build walls or, or buildings. The, what's the idea? What, what, what is the connection between the word Anuchi, I am, and the word Anachi, which means vertical? The idea is that when God addresses us using the word Anuchi, He sort of draws a metaphorical vertical line which connects the divine I, the divine Anuchi, I am, to the human I, the human Anuchi. What does this vertical line do? It sort of lifts us up from, from being entrenched in nature. Nature, in a way, when you only, when all you believe in is that there is a universe and everything in it, then in a way, everything is horizontal for you. Everything is on the same level. It's all part of this physical universe. And we're all just made up of atoms, and we're all equals. Nothing is higher or lower than anything else. But when God addresses mankind and says, I am your God and I want a personal rapport with you, I want a relationship with you, we sort of, it sort of lifts us up. We can, we can sense this in a little bit by the fact that we are the quintessential vertical animal. We don't walk on four, we don't swim, we don't crawl, we don't fly, which is all relatively horizontal movements. Uh, we stand upright. And in a way, we, we create, we ourselves create a kind of vertical line. We are the only species that can say the word Anuchi, that has language. 
and that can acknowledge the fact that there is a creator to the world. So this is a, an extension of our humanity, that we stand upright, we create a vertical line, we stand upright, and we transcend the horizontality of nature, and God is appealing to this sense that we can, uh, we can, have a, we can feel that there's something transcendent, and, and raise our eyes up to this transcendence, and God echoes back the word Anuchi, and then that, created, that creates an Anuchi vertical line between our own I and God's I, so to speak. So these are three interpretations. Now they have two things in common, notice. First, each one attributes the word Anuchi to a language that is not Hebrew. And Hebrew is considered the holy tongue, the language with which God created the world. So this is a big thing. That's such a main, major word, the word that opens up the Ten Commandments, the word that opens up God's revelation to the Jewish people, is not in Hebrew, according to all three interpretations. Second, each of these three interpretations expresses the idea that God is personally appealing to each and every one of us, wherever we are. Now, these two commonalities, the fact that all three interpretations say that the word Anuchi is not in Hebrew, and the fact that they address this idea of a, an interpersonal relationship, um, they're very profoundly interconnected. The idea is that each one of us is sort of immersed in our own world, in our own private language, which is not a holy language. It's, a, it's an earthly, regular language. It's our own world of associations and world of ideas. And each one of us is in his own bubble or in his own the bubble of his group. And yet God is seeking to penetrate all these bubbles, all these worlds, worlds, and establish an interpersonal relationship with each one of us. He sort of says, I'm going to speak to you in your own language, I'm going to use acronyms, and I'm going to, to use the language that you're used to, and, and I'm going to uh, uh, call out to you so that you come out of your personal mother tongue, which may not be a holy tongue, and I want to create a disconnection with you. So this is something very deep that we can see in just the first word of the Ten Commandments. Now, to, to finish up this class, um, I want to come full circle with the beginning. In the beginning, we discussed the contrast between the interpretation of the sages, who recognized that I am the Lord your God is the first of the Ten Commandments, and the Christian approach, which considers this merely a prelude or part of the first commandment, but not the actual first commandment, and divides the last commandment into two. So it's, it's fitting to uh, conclude this class by analyzing the relationship between the first commandment, I am the Lord your God, and the last one, which is, uh, do not, thou shall not covet both wife and property and everything that belongs to the other person. It's one commandment. Now, according to Jewish teachings, it is customary to divide the Ten Commandments into two groups, as they are divided on the tablets of the covenant and to understand the first five commandments as addressing the relationship between man and God, and the last five commandments as addressing the relationship between man and fellow man. Right? It's called Ben Adam Lamakom and Ben Adam Lechavero, two types of commandments, five each. However, if you look more closely, it seems that each of these, within each of these two groups, the last commandment, that is the fifth one and the tenth one, are, are a little bit different. They're not just like the, the, the four commandments that come before them. So, 
What is the fifth commandment, the last of the first group? It's honor your father and your mother. Now, if we say that the first five commandments are between man and God, then honoring your father and mother doesn't seem to really fit the picture here. And really, the, the idea is that honoring our father and mother is a kind of intermediate between commandments that we have in relation to God and commandments that we, that we have in relation to other people. Why? Because our parents are, on the one hand, they're human, they're human beings, they're other, they're fellow men, so to speak, fellow man and a woman. Um, but on the other hand, they're not really our equals because they took part in creating us. They partnered with God in bringing us into the world. And so when we honor them, it's, it's a little bit like honoring God. So on the one hand, it's part of the first five because it's, uh, like I said, they're, they're partners with God. But on the other hand, it's already the beginning of the next four commandments or the next five, those that have to do with our relationship with, fellow, with our fellow men. Now, what about the last one? You shall not covet. Now, if we say that the first, that the last ten commandments have to do with a relation, the relationship between man and fellow man, then this falls into this category that it's between our me, our, our, between us and and fellow people. However, uh, it's not really about a relationship with us and other people, because it has to do with our own thoughts, coveting, non-covet, not coveting. That's something that we. Uh, it's inner work. It's something that we do. It's it's how do we fight sensations that we have? Do we dwell on our thoughts? Do we uh, push away our thoughts? And no one knows about this, and no one is hurt by this. Even if I, God forbid, if someone covets someone else's wife or his house or whatever it is, but he doesn't act on it, there are other commandments for that. There's not to commit adultery, and there's not to steal. If he only covets but doesn't do anything about this how is the other person directly hurt? They're not directly hurt, maybe somehow indirectly, energetically in some way, but they're not directly hurt. So in a way we can say that the final, final commandment out of the Ten Commandments really takes up a third category of commandments. It's not a commandment between ourselves and, and God. It's not a commandment between ourselves and other people. It's a third category. It's commandments that refer to something that's between ourselves and ourselves. It's something that takes place entirely within our hearts. This is the whole expanse of inner work that the Torah calls on us to do, and that's completely private and internal. Now, this understanding shows us, tells us something very deep, that there's a deep connection between the very, very first commandment of the Ten and the very last one. In a way, this inner work between ourselves and our own thoughts and feelings and desires, we feel God's presence in, when doing this work in many ways, in a more intimate way than we do when we observe the regular commandments between us and Hashem, like uh, not serving idols or observing the Sabbath or saying blessings or whatever it is. Because these are external actions that we do, and they're directed to God. But when we work within ourselves to transcend our desires, and to work on not dwelling on certain negative thoughts, then we really feel God's presence within us. But again, in this way that is not direct, it doesn't 
tell us, you must believe, you mustn't believe, it's very much like the very first commandment. So there's something about these two commandments, the first one that tells us, I am the Lord your God, and the last one that tells us, I want you to be in charge of your desires and your inner world, your inner life, that they really, really connect together. Hi, if you enjoyed this video, please press like, subscribe to the channel, and consider sharing it with your friends. See you in the next video.